0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg. Virginia. We're continuing
1: our series this summer through the wisdom books and, uh, and then through the major prophets before we dive back into our study of Jeremiah through the end of the year. So you'll be helped if you take your Bible, open it to the book of Ecclesiastes and keep it open, and we're going to move pretty quickly through it, but it's going to be important to have that open so you can reference and read along with me and uh, have a fuller context for what's going on as we we read together. Again, uh, just a reminder of our goal for our series this summer. These are overview sermons. They're not meant to be in-depth looks and explorations at the book, chapter by chapter, like we normally do through books of the Bible, but taking one book and looking at its major themes and ideas, understanding why God has given this particular book to us, his church today, why it's in the scriptures, what we can learn from it, and hopefully understand more clearly how we see Christ, particularly in the Old Testament. We are making our way slowly through the entire Bible, so at some point the next go-round will be some of the minor prophets, uh, and then we'll begin our series through the New Testament overview sermons as well. But we're in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, so turn there and then pray with me, and we'll begin. Father, thank you for this morning and the gift of, of grace and life. It is a good, Lord, to be in the house of the Lord. We pray, God, that our time, our remainder of our time, would be as worshipful as the first half has been. And so we pray, God, for those who are here, that their ears and eyes would be open to the truth of your word, to the wisdom of your word, that the heart would be led by your spirit to embrace the grace of Christ revealed in your word, even through the book of Ecclesiastes, we pray, God, that you would give us strength and encouragement, and conviction to walk boldly in light of the truth we see from your word, and that we would love Christ more faithfully in our lives. We pray, for God, God for those who are not here, they're, those who are traveling, they're sick, uh, they're incapacitated in one way or another, Lord, would they be encouraged by your word and they're able while they're out to to gather with the saints in another place, God, that they would be encouraged there. We also pray for those who are uh, not here or gathered with the body because of sin or neglect in their life. We pray God that you would firmly, yet gently, correct and rebuke them in their sin and draw them again to yourself and to the body that they may be restored into fellowship and walk more faithfully according to your word. And Lord, we pray most of all that you would be glorified both in this church and in our lives for your Glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the big question in the book of Ecclesiastes, like it is in the rest of the literature of wisdom books in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and the Song of Songs, as well as Ecclesiastes, is whether or not wisdom is worth it. We all desire in some ways to be wise But like Jake said last week, not all wisdom is created equal. Wisdom is not simply the application of knowledge, but it's the particular understanding of God's created order. And what He desires from the world, and what He desires of His people. To live wisely then, according to the Bible, is not simply about moving through the world as a sage, unbothered and unhindered by the difficulties we may face, like a Stoic or some sort of Hindu priest that views all things as illusions, but rather to embrace the reality of a fallen world and to understand that this is not according to God's created order, that this is in fact a disordered reality we exist in and we face. And wisdom then is really the path that we chart to navigate such a world. So does wisdom deliver on the promises it makes? That's the question that the book of Ecclesiastes answers for us, or at least leads us to ask, and then provides us hopefully with some tools to answer the question. Ecclesiastes and really the Song of Songs are probably the two most head scratching books of the Old Testament, certainly of the wisdom literature itself. You wonder sometimes why these books are in the Bible. This book, if you've read it before, is a bit cynical, and if you tend towards depression, it may not be the best book to reach for off the shelf immediately because it really raises some questions and some feelings about whether anything is really worth it at all. You can see there in just the first couple of verses that the author declares that all things are vain, futile, worthless, senseless, like a puff of air or smoke. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Same thing with the Song of Solomon. This book, you might think, is simply about a Man's love for a woman and a woman's love for a man. and Why do these books, other than some practical reasons, exist in the corpus of God's revelation? Why do they exist in the Bible at all? Well, that's the, that's the question we should ask ourselves, not only of these books, but of any book. Because God preserves His Word for us from generation to generation, culture to culture, from millennia to millennia, so that any Christian who follows Christ, any person of God who submits himself to their word, His Word, can glean and understand something about the nature of God, about His purposes, His covenant, and His created order that's important for us to navigate through the world. So they give us wisdom for what life is like in a fallen world. They anticipate some of the difficulties that you and I will encounter as we face corruption and evil desires from without and within our own heart as we think about what our lives should be like, what we build our lives on, all of these things are questions that we face, challenges that we face. And the book of Ecclesiastes, like the others, give us wisdom to make the right choices according to God's word. Particularly the book of Ecclesiastes helps us navigate the chaotic waters of a world gone wrong. And it does this through the eyes or the lens of someone who is deeply wrestling with some of the assumptions of a biblical worldview. Now, if you've grown up in church or you've been around church for a while, you may have some assumptions sort of baked into your worldview that you don't know how they got there. That's kind of the goal, to be honest, of Christian parents instructing our children that they assume or inherit some of our worldviews before they really understand what's going on. And there does become a point in their lives where they wonder, question, and examine. They turn that that assumption over again. And if we've done our job well, and we've surrounded them with love and care, and we're willing, they're in a, a community, in a church that helps them and fosters not only those kinds of healthy questions, but the right answers to which they belong, then they'll arrive at their own conclusions, not based on assumptions, but... Inevitably, we will come face-to-face with the assumptions of a biblical worldview that we receive from our upbringing, from our church instruction, from the sermons we read, from the books we read, or the sermons we hear, from the scriptures that we intake. We see that a biblical worldview is built up around us, and a lot of these things we can take for granted. And Ecclesiastes is written from a perspective of someone who is now questioning the assumptions of some of those truths. Assumptions like the wicked will be punished and the righteous will prosper. Assumptions like life has a meaning and a purpose and God hasn't simply let the world go on its own like a spinning top. But actually cares and intends to uphold the world in his own ways. Assumption like every action has a meaning and that nothing happens without a reason. Those are good assumptions to make, but here we see someone handling and turning over those assumptions, trying to seek wisely what those assumptions are founded upon. And so if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, we see some negative examples of how those assumptions are being challenged and cause doubts and questions in the mind of those who ponder, and then there are some positive affirmations. So yes, though there are some certainty in a world full of uncertainty, and there is some stability in a world full of chaos, generally speaking, the author of Ecclesiastes tends to arrive at the fact that there's a lot going on that we can't control. There's a lot going on in the world that we we can't answer for. And so what can we do but allow these things to happen and just do our best to make it through to the end? Now that may seem like a bit of a nihilistic answer or a reductionistic kind of approach to life, But remember, this is God's word. And so we're not simply reading the musings of someone who has given up in life and resigned themselves to the way things will just simply be. Although at a first glance we see some of that language maybe trending in that direction. But because we see this as God's word preserved for us in the Bible, in the scripture, even before Christians were on the scene, this was Jewish sacred text, their wisdom literature. We know that God wants to say something to every culture and every time even through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so he's holding up, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's holding up a worldview that is being questioned and explored so that we, with the author, might come to look and question and turn over some of these basic truths we come to take for granted so that we can reaffirm what it is we believe, so that we can walk more confidently in a world. Does wisdom pay off? Does it act according to its promises? Will it deliver on its word? The answer, of course, will lead us in the affirmative. But sometimes we need to walk the rocks to see the mountain view. So here's the main idea this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes in the sermon. It's that no matter how confusing or frustrating or infuriating this world can be, We are sustained by the presence, power, and promise of our Sovereign King. No matter how confusing, frustrating, or infuriating this world can be, we are sustained by the power, the presence, and the promise of our Sovereign King. We're going to take this in three approaches. The first being the longest, the greater exposition and overview of the book of Ecclesiastes will be what I've called vanity, very original, I know. But under the header of vanity, we see the reality of the world we live in. The second heading of our sermon and our outline this morning is victory and third, vitality. So vanity, victory, and vitality will guide us this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's begin by examining the word vanity. What the book of Ecclesiastes does for us is give us a reality check. And many of us when we became Christians remember the experience of what it was like to come to know God savingly. We felt like the whole world was opened up to us anew. We had fresh eyes to see and ears to hear. We saw not only the ridiculousness of sin, but the beauty of the gospel and the wisdom of his word. And we threw ourselves wholeheartedly into obedience and faithfulness. Into walking out all that he has called us to. And we remember that time sweetly. But after a while, if you've been walking with the Lord in any amount of time. We've noticed that we've begun to step off the path in one way or another. That old habits do indeed die hard. And sometimes we return, to borrow the phrase from the Proverbs, like a dog to the vomit. We return to our sin. It's this sort of cycle of life that every Christian understands. And even non-Christians begin to see the pattern that though we make strides in the right direction, whatever the good life may be, we often find ourselves teetering in one end or the other, in one ditch to the other, and having to correct ourselves cyclically over and over and over again. And this underlines, the, or under, uh, um, emphasis, and underlines the, the worldview of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. That the world is not as it should be, and we are not as we should be. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes and the author of Ecclesiastes gives us what's called a reality check that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Now, I know you and I can affirm that on paper. We read our Bibles and we watch the news or we hear the stories. We know that this world is not perfect. But often we have a way as Christians, particularly in the West, of isolating and insulating ourselves from the world in such a way that we can believe, at least practically, that it's not so bad after all. We can amass for ourselves certain creature comforts and securities We can arrange our life and order our lives in such a way that, by and large, things are going pretty well for us. We sleep well at night. Our kids are moderately well-behaved. Our job is going swimmingly. We have a bright future ahead of us. We enjoy our friends and our family. All in all, though the world is not perfect, life is good. Well, this is not the path that the book of Ecclesiastes has taken us on. What has happened often is that we insulate ourselves from the realities of the world Because either we bury our head in the sand and we ignore the sin in our own hearts and in the hearts of those closest to us. Or we dismiss it haphazardly as something that is not really of our own doing. But the reality is, friends, that you and I live in a deeply fallen and corrupted world. And we should not for a moment forget that fact. And it's not simply that it's us out in here and them out there, but that we contribute to the fallenness of the world ourselves. Though Christ has redeemed us from our sin, we still sin and remain sinners despite our sainthood. And so our own sin and our own failures in corruption, even as God sanctifies us through His Word and Spirit, leads us to understand, if we're truly honest with ourselves, that this world is a fallen world, corrupted by sin. And it wasn't always this way. God created the world perfect. And He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the world, perfect, morally, upright, without sin. And they enjoyed a perfect, sinless relationship with God. But Adam transgressed the law of God Sin entered into the world and corrupted not just Adam's heart and therefore all of his posterity, every child born after Adam, but also the world itself is under a curse, longing for redemption and restoration. And so every human now contributes to the fallenness of creation. War, hunger, famine, disease, sin, and death all reign in the world because of sin. Some of us need this reality check. And we don't want to be pessimists either. We don't want to walk through this world calling out everything as we see it as completely and utterly garbage, rubbish, and trash. Thankfully, the whole Bible is not like the book of Ecclesiastes in that most of the time we see the hope-filled promises that God has in the world. And the way that we can live and enjoy the things that God has redeemed in the world. Ecclesiastes gives us a, a a sober shot in the arm that says, don't forget, things are really bad out there. We live in a fallen world and we're fallen from a state of righteousness and grace into a place of sin and corruption. And what Ecclesiastes then does for us is open up In five ways, more probably, the way sin affects the world we live in so that we can walk wisely navigating through these changes. So the assumption is that we live in a fallen world. How do we live in this world? Well, sin does five things to our reality that we need to understand and navigate if we are to walk wisely according to God's word. The first reality check that we live in a fallen world is that we must recognize that sin limits our perspective and our knowledge. Sin limits our perspective and our knowledge of the world. Over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that the The author uses the Hebrew word or verb for I saw. There's there's an empirical observation happening. I saw, I thought, I perceived. He uses this word 19 times throughout the book. And it's this perception, his own observations, that are the basis of his reflections upon life. So notice that the scope of Ecclesiastes is only as so far as the experience, the empirical, physical, observable experience of the author himself. He's not perceiving spiritual means. He's not perceiving beyond the scope of what he can see and touch and experience himself. Sin has limited the perspective of the author here. In our own minds, we cannot see beyond what we can touch or feel. We can try to put frameworks of knowledge together, but all of this is based on empirical data, what we take in with our senses. To really have a full perspective of what lies beyond the scope of our own perception, we need God to open our eyes to those things. What is not obvious to us must be made by means of revelation. Well, because we live in a fallen world, we recognize that sin has limited our perspective And our knowledge. He uses the phrase over and over again, life under the sun, meaning the fallenness of our physical world. Notice what he says in the first 11 verses vanity of vanity, he says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. For what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? As generation goes and generations come, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. This is, of course, a bleak view of the world, but notice The perspective is limited to what we can see and perceive with our own eyes and senses. The author here, the preacher, supposedly a wise man, looks at the world around him and says, look at the pattern of the world. Look at the physical creation. The sun goes up, it goes down, it rises again, and it falls again. The wind blows from the south to the north. And back again, even the streams, they keep going to the sea, but the sea is never full and the streams keep going. Everything, it says in verse 8, everything is full of weariness. You cannot see, you cannot hear to its fullest. There's a limitedness of his perspective. And he says, there's no end in sight to what we can see and hear, but we cannot go beyond this. This phrase, under the sun, demonstrates the limits and the scope and the sphere of his knowledge. There is nothing new under the sun, he says. What has been is what will be, and we won't remember what has come, and what we do now won't necessarily be remembered by those who come after, and so history, they say, is doomed to repeat itself. This is a limited view and perspective not only of the world around us, but of the way God works and sustains the world. It's a limited view of how God interacts with His creation, and it's a limited perspective and knowledge of the care and conservation God uses to uphold the world. God has not simply left the world to its own devices, or created it, and let it go on its own, but the streams flow because God directs them and demands that they continue to flow. The wind blows, not because man can control it or because there are uncontrollable forces in the universe, but because God demands that the wind blows. The sun rises and the sun sets at the command of the Lord. We see in the book of Psalms and the Proverbs and all throughout Scripture that creation bows to the will of God. This is a limited perspective here by our author, and so the assumption here is that this is we're working from behind the knowledge and perspective we ought to have. What's the remedy to this? We turn to God's word. We turn to promises and declarations like Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies declare his handiwork. What the author here failed to see was that God was working behind the scenes. This wasn't an endless merry-go-round of biological and ecological happenings. But the upholding and the conservation of God in a world He created, sustaining life. Notice all the things that He talks of. He talks of the generations that come and go. Life. He talks of the sun which rises and sets. Where is life without the sun? The wind which blows off the sea to the land, giving cool and refreshing air, breath in the lungs of those who breathe, streams of water running from its sources to its destination. Because of the limited perspective and knowledge of sin, our author here cannot fully see what God is really doing behind the scenes. But we live in a fallen world And so our perspective and our knowledge is limited because of the corruption of our own hearts. But there's another limitation because of sin. Because we live in a fallen world, we see secondly that sin weakens the power and the profit of pleasure. Now God creates the world and He created the world in order to be enjoyed by His creation. If you read the creation account in Genesis, we see in the first several days, God created a land and a world that would be habitable by the beings that he would put in it. First, the the crawling things, the flying things, and ultimately those beasts, the animals, and, and mankind. Creation was meant to be enjoyed by those who dwell within it. But sin has weakened the power and the profit of such pleasure and has made these things less worth it. Weaken the power of pleasure, what we taste we no longer have great joy for, and the profit of those things has been weakened as well. Notice in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that there's a sense of purpose and fulfillment that has been drained from the labor. It says, what does it gain? What does a man gain by all the toil, at which he toils under the sun. He says, it's vanity. There's nothing to be gained or no profit in our labors, and our toils, and in our working, in our seeking of pleasures. Notice that in the garden, Adam was called to tend to it, to exercise dominion over it, to subdue it. And yet, when he sinned and was excommunicated from the garden, the land and the toil now was cursed. And what was once profitable and pleasurable now is difficult, is less profitable, indeed, less enjoyable. This is the cause of the sin weakening the power and the profit of pleasure which we were called to enjoy and entertain. The sense of our purpose and fulfillment in our work and our labors has been drained from what we do because of our fallenness. Look in chapter 2 and read the first 11 verses there. He says, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. So he found no vanity in his labor. He found no vanity or he found no worth or purpose in the world. But now he looks and says, well, may I just give my heart all that it wants Behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had a great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered myself for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and surpassed all who were born before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered that all my all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Notice that even after he has given himself pleasure after pleasure after pleasure, after he has withheld any denial of love, pleasure, delight from himself, he still comes to the conclusion that all of it is vanity. To pursue these things is like pursuing the wind. There's nothing to be gained from it in a fallen world. He recognizes that sin has even weakened the power and the pleasure of our labors, of God's good creation. All of this seems to have had its purpose and fulfillment drained from it. And so what we see in chapter two is that the carnal and the unmoderated pursuit of pleasure and delight And comfort and ease. It does not produce the good life like many imagine it will. That when we are told that if you just go for your own happiness, that you do what makes you happy, that you look out for yourself, that you build a life of comfort and ease and security, that will be the good life. Then you will arrive. Then you can rest. That all of this, Ecclesiastes teach us, is vanity. And so he sort of says that the best way to approach life then is with resignation. Essentially, enjoy it while you can and as it comes. Look in verse 9 of chapter 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But also he has put eternity in in the heart of man yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's the limited perception. So I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. For I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, for nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. For that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This vanity is a life spent in pursuit of such ease and comfort because once you receive those things and accomplish those things and finally have those things, you will find, even like the author here has, that sin has weakened the value and the pleasure and the profit of such things to where even those things are such vanity. And so you might as well just enjoy life and the little things while you can. Again, in verse 22, the end of that chapter, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should just rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, a bleak view, but a lesson learned from man who has understood the reality that we live in a fallen world where sin not only limits our perspective and knowledge, but weakens the power and the profit of pleasure. Third, we learn that because we live in a fallen world, sin frustrates our expectations of what life should be. Sin frustrates our expectations of what life should be. Look in the first three verses of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both, that is, better than both the dead and the living, is he who has never been born, or he has yet not been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says this because when he looks out at life around him, he sees such oppression and idolatry, and injustice, that life indeed may not actually be worth living. He envies those who have not yet been born because those who are living experience such things, and those who have died have finally been released from such things. Again, remember this is a reminder that sin is a reality of our life and it frustrates our expectation of what life should be. Of course, we should see justice and God's created order, of course we should not see oppression, but justice. We should see those who care for, love, and uphold their brothers in integrity, but instead we see the very opposite. But not only is it oppression and injustice everywhere to be seen in a world filled with sin, but also in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, we see that even prosperity and wealth will not satisfy. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, That he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, for this is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? For sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. It means that when you seek to amass more, you will never have enough. You will gain for yourself riches and wealth and a house, but soon you will fill that house with many things and desire a bigger house and fill that house with more things. And eventually you'll restart and go down to minimalism, but then all your things will be the best and the most expensive. And eventually you'll amass for yourself more things and more wealth and more material possessions, more comfort, more ease, more security, more profit for yourself. You'll move on from material possessions to status or power, Move on from status or power to respect. And pretty soon you see that you'll never ever satisfied with your prosperity, with your wealth, and with your happiness. You'll find that you'll always long for more. But notice what he has said before, that eternity is sown into or woven into the heart of man. Well, what could ever fill the gap or fill the hole that eternity alone can fill? no amount of riches or wealth in this life, no no size of your house or fast car, no amount of relationship, no amount of purpose in life could ever fulfill what was sown into your heart through eternity. Only God alone can fulfill a desire, only eternity itself. So, of course, when we walk through sin-frustrated world where we find ourselves disappointed and our expectations Fallen of what life should be. So sin limits our perspective and our knowledge, limiting the scope of what we see and can know, but sin weakens the power and the profit of our pleasure and frustrates our expectations of what life should be. Fourthly, we see that because we live in a fallen world, sin blinds us to the sovereign purposes of God. Or perhaps worse, it even promotes giving up on life altogether sin blinds us to the sovereign purposes of God, or worse, promotes giving up. There's a term that's been in the news lately, you might have seen it called quiet quitting. And it's when people who go to their work, and they don't actually quit their job, but they basically do the bare minimum. They have in all practicality, quit their job. Well, those who have looked out in life and see that all is vanity and have taken this to heart may be so blinded to the purposes of God that they essentially quiet quit on the world around them. They have given up. Of course there's injustice. Of course there's oppression. Of course there's tsunamis. Of course things won't work out the way I want. And they simply go through life with a resignated spirit. It doesn't matter whether God makes this happen or that happen. All that will be will be, and all that is has been. This is a blinding to the sovereign purposes of God. It's a bit like the limited perspective and the knowledge which we see sin incurs on us in the first place, that we become blind to these sovereign purposes. Look in chapter 9. Let's read there in the first 10 verses. He said, I laid this all to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happened to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good is, as a good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Notice he's recognized that the wicked and the righteous Those who obey and disobey, those who swear and refuse to swear, the same outcome seems to happen to all of them, regardless of their work or their duty. He calls it an evil. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after this they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is under the sun. So, what's the answer? Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife from whom you love. All the days of your vain life he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do that with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is where you're going. We all will die, he says, and so enjoy the life while you can. But this is a blindedness to the sovereign purposes of God, which indeed makes life worth living because it sees the purposes of such a life. This we see as an attitude of giving up on life. The teacher here has wrongly concluded that because death comes for all of us, there is little actual difference between the life of the righteous and that of the wicked. And so it's better just to make the best of what you have. But we can see the futility in such an attitude. Because it ignores what God desires from each one of us, even in the smaller areas of our life. So sin, because we live in a fallen world, sin blinds us to the sovereign purposes of God. Lastly, because we live in a fallen world, sin sows seeds of doubt and uncertainty in our hearts. Sin sows seeds of doubt and uncertainty in our hearts. In chapter 11, we read in the first six verses, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it in many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. He says, go and do what you need to do. Prepare, because you don't know what will happen. The future is uncertain. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on earth. And if a tree falls to the south to the north and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. For he who observes the wind will not sow And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, don't let the uncertainty of life keep you from doing something. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. for youth in the dawn of life or vanity. Now, he says there's uncertainty of life and you don't know what will happen to you and so you might as well work diligently while you can. But this is still a call to be active despite the uncertainty, even if it's just practicalities. Again, we see a somewhat veiled assumption here of God's sovereignty that he will do all the work, he will bring it about. It may be fatalistic, but we must, at the end of the day, Do what we can, while we can, for death comes for us all. And the discourse here ends with a word to the young, but not as an encouragement to go and live it up or to sow your wild oats, but as a warning that because all is vanity, such pursuits will ultimately only end in judgment, which awaits all of us. That's what he says there. Know, at the end of verse 9, know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Or there in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12. Remember your Creator in all the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure. And he speaks poetically of the end that comes, where then we will stand before God. Verse 7, it says that the dust returns to dust as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. So this is not an encouragement to live it up, as one might expect on first reading, but a warning that God's judgment waits all of us who pursue such empty things. So what is the conclusion here? His conclusion is that all is vanity. The the word for vanity is the Hebrew word, hebel, which is like a puff of air. It's like a fleeting, mysterious, senseless cloud of smoke, dissipating, In other words, it carries the sense of meaningless with it. He says all of these pursuits in this world, because sin has corrupted all, it is essentially senseless and meaningless. We can hear the wrestling of doubt with truth and of purpose with purposelessness. He says life might be sort of like a hot Krispy Kreme donut. When you drive through, you see the light is on in Central Park. You drive in and you get yourself one of those. And it's nice, it's gooey, and it's warm. And you take a bite and it instantly melts in your mouth as if it's just air. And you eat it. And it's gone in three seconds. And it was sweet and delicious. And then it added absolutely no value nutrition. And it was mostly 99% air. Yes, a model, a marvel of modern. Baking machinery, but much like the life here the preacher describes. All is vanity, a puff of smoke, a Krispy Kreme donut. Chasing the wind is an apt phrase, I think, that captures the sense of futility of life in a world which is not as it should be. Okay, so what do we do? We've read the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that we live in a fallen world in which sin limits our perspective and our knowledge. Our sin, our, our, our profit and power of pleasures weakened by sin. Our experience of life is frustrating because of expectations which are not met of what life should be. We are blinded to the sovereign purposes of God because we only see so nearsighted. We're tempted to quiet quit on life. And we have seeds of doubt and un- insecurities and uncertainty sown into our heart because who knows what will happen. What do we do? Well, we understand that all is vanity if indeed sin were to to rule the day. But it is not Christ, is it not Christ who indeed stands as king? It is not vanity, but victory, which is the motto of the Christian life. That is, God, through Christ, redeems a fallen world, rescues a fallen world, saves a fallen people. The vanity of life, which is described in the book of Ecclesiastes, is transformed by the victory of Christ on the cross. He comes to give a greater and fulfilling purpose, not simply to those who would follow him, but to all who would come after. Futility under Christ gives way to fulfillment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul here is speaking of resurrection which is the power of Christ, having been raised from the dead. And he gives himself to all the darkness and the futility of the world, only to be raised again. And in the resurrection, God says that the vanity and the futility and the darkness of life will not hold the victory and the power of God forever. The vanity of life will be transformed by the victory of Christ. And futility is no more for the Christian, but fulfillment and purpose, in verse 51, after speaking of the resurrection, and in, in chapter 15, we read this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. For this ch- perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, Immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says the exact opposite of what the author of Ecclesiastes said. That your life in Christ does have purpose, and in the Lord your labors will not be in vain. When Ecclesiastes says that under the sun there is nothing new and everything you do is vanity of vanities, like a puff of smoke, enjoy it while you can because death comes for us. Paul says, no, no, no. That would be true if you were not saved. But if you call out upon the name of the Lord, as we said earlier today, when you are transformed by the power of the resurrected Christ, death becomes swallowed up in victory. There is no sting of death. Because victory through the Lord Jesus Christ transforms the futility and the vanity of life to the victory of Christ. We have a fulfilling and a purposeful life. Your labors are not in vain. Moms, your labor is not in vain day in and day out. Husbands, your labor is not in vain as you seek to be patient, guide, and instruct, and lead your family. Friends, your labor is not in vain as you have the hard work of conversations and confrontations with those whom you love. Your labor is not in vain as you seek to behold God in the darkness of your circumstances. Your labor is not in vain when you seek to hold out Christ to your co-workers or to your neighbors despite what may be happening in immediate circumstances of your life. In Christ and in the Lord, your labors are not in vain because Christ's death was not in vain and his resurrection proves the victory over the grave this is the great transformation this is how we can read the book of ecclesiastes as a book of wisdom but because it shows us that life indeed under the sun is futile and vanity but under the son of god it is purposeful it is good and so we move not simply from vanity to victory but from victory to vitality. That is, not only do we have redemption, but we also experience the very resurrection which leads us to our victory. There is a life infused within our very existence. We're going to end at Romans chapter 8. And notice that all things, he says, will be made new. In Romans eight eighteen. this is the promise of what is yet to come. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can rephrase this. I consider that the vanities of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility to vanity, to senselessness. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, As we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. For the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice what he says here that beyond the scope and the sight and the limited perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, Friends, you and I in Christ can be assured of God's perfect timing and purposes for the world. We can be assured of the Spirit's indwelling presence in our life, which gives us a sense of that purpose and leads us, even in our own weakness, to the greater fulfillment of our life's calling. And we can rejoice and be assured of Christ's life-giving power, for He who was risen from the dead and the power which raised from the dead is the same power that lies within us and gives us life-giving power. So friends, your life is not in vain. Your life is not futile. Your life is not like a Krispy Kreme donut. It is purposeful. And the purpose of such a life is to fear God. For even the book of Ecclesiastes knows this. It is to trust God. and It is to see in your life the blessings and the grace of God, the victory of Christ, and the promises of the Spirit as He guides you for your full and created purpose to experience that which we lost in the garden, regained in heaven, where nothing is vain, but all is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day because we can echo, sometimes in despair and in discouragement with Ecclesiastes, that things seem oftentimes worthless and vain and futile, that we're spinning our wheels and we're getting nowhere. That no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, things become really no better than if we had just done a moderate or minimal amount. But God, that is not the life you called us to. That is not a life which honors you. And so let us take the lessons we observe from the book of Ecclesiastes and help us to navigate by your spirit this world which is filled with devils and snares and temptations that is indeed, if lived under the sun, a life lived in vain. But God, those who live in the presence and the power of the resurrected Jesus knows that the vanity of life is transformed into victory and that futility is transformed. It gives way into fulfillment. And that we walk with integrity and assurance knowing that we have the best of our possible life and only greater things will come. So we ask that we would be so moved by that truth that we would seek to live with patience in this world, that we would walk strategically and wisely through this world because of the challenges that sin causes us to face. But we live with hope, resurrection hope, that you have done all this for us in Christ so that we do not despair, but we can declare the wonder, the power, and the glory of Jesus who gives us life. We love you as always in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. of the when the winds of blow through me, my Suffering in the sorrow when my singing hopes are few. and rage on when Tim shoot It's a